I've only ever done this once before, where before this week's episode has even started, I'm already telling you what next week's episode is going to be. Last time I did it, it was with Olav Alexander Boo, the head coach of Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden. And honestly, that was one of, if not my best episodes ever. And so this is reserved for episodes that I believe are really special. Next week, we've got an episode with Sam Long and his new coach, world championship winning coach, Dan Plews, to talk about why they're working together, what they're doing, what they're changing, and how they plan to take things to the next level with Sam's performance. This is the first time the both of them have come together on a podcast to talk about it. And trust me, it's one of my best ever. So keep an eye out for that coming next week. Also, as you know, I'm potentially the world's biggest advocate for pillar performance. Not a day goes by where I don't take their triple magnesium powder before bed to wake up fresher for training in the morning. And now I also use Ultra B Active and Ultra Immune C every single day as my supplement rotation. If you care about your training like me and live a stressful, busy life again like me and struggle to squeeze it all in, then trust me, grab those three things from Pillar Performance. Use the discount code HTT20 for 20% off and get free shipping when you grab all three of them together. And thank me for it because honestly, it makes such a noticeable difference and I wish I'd started doing it sooner. We also have a big announcement coming with Pillar Performance. So for those of you listening in America, just know... Pillar is coming soon, sooner than you think. Cam Brown, welcome to How They Train. I was trying to think before this episode, Cam, how do I sum up in a few sentences what you are to the sport of triathlon? And I decided it's pretty much impossible You've obviously been a runner-up at the Ironman World Championships multiple times and on the podium a couple more. Um, I don't even know how many Ironman races you've won, but I would say it must be at least 20 by now. And you're still racing as a professional, which is pretty crazy, at I think you're 50 years old now, um, which is like 20 years after you came second at Kona for the first time. Uh, And that's just pretty insane to me. Like I can't even really wrap my head around that. And I've heard some pretty insane stories about you as well and the training you've done in the past. I don't know if it's still the training you do, including by people who you've raced against and are Ironman World Championship winners themselves. So these people who sat, who, who are telling me these things about the insane training you've done over your years are pretty credible people. Um, for example, rumors of some 40 to 45-hour training weeks being quite staple in, in your training program. And, and I, th- I figured, can we start there, Cam, and talk about these rumors of you having some of the highest training volumes, if not the single highest training volumes of any professional long course athlete to ever do it? Yeah, yeah, no, no problem. I've um, definitely, definitely had a few um, insane weeks over the uh, over the years, and yeah, I think some of them nearly killed me and put me in the box, but um, I think some of them just made me, you know, get stronger and get faster and. Um, you know, I think get on that podium in Hawaii. I definitely um, doubled my training under you know my coach Scott Molina back in the day in the early two uh, thousands. That for sure. Can you take me into the specifics behind it? Like when you say that the weeks that almost killed you, how how big are we talking? Uh so yeah, I was swimming sort of twenty twenty five k's of swimming a week, um, and then I was biking I think up to eight hundred k's, and then uh, running around one hundred twenty k's. So. I've uh, I've got the got the diaries to prove it, so uh, I could um, yeah 
go down to the office and and, and get them out and <laughs> tell you the the uh, the weeks. That's for sure. So hang on, eight hundred k of cycling must be like what twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight hours worth of cycling in a week. Yeah, yeah, it, it really gets up there when you're doing that sort of the amount of k's and um, yeah, those I think those those big weeks. A lot of them were done on uh, Burley, uh, the Gold Coast in Australia. So. Um, they were yeah, leading up to Hawaii and, and um, yeah, Scott was just trying to push me to that next level and, and uh, seeing what he could uh, get out of me. But um, yeah, I, I think I remember one time it, uh, I, I put, really put myself in the box and got really, really sick um, pre-Hawaii uh, and I think he thought, yeah, no, nah, that's it. You're not going to be doing any any good in Hawaii this year. But I managed to, I think, pull it out of the bag and I, I don't know if I, it was either I got second or third that year. So but I was, um, yeah, putting it all on the line, that's for sure. I was just trying to do the math in my head. Like I had to turn my head a little bit because I laughed at like how crazy that is. Like uh, we've heard some crazy training weeks, but that is like next level crazy, Cam. Um, and I mean that in a very complimentary way. I'm the biggest fan of, of crazy training weeks. So if you're doing like about 27, let's say 27, 28 hours of cycling in a week, 120 Ks of running is like, I guess it's, um, it's about 10 hours, so that's 30, let's call it 38 hours. And then swimming, like if you're doing 25K a week, that's probably, you know, what's that, like eight hours-ish, maybe a little bit less. That's well in excess of 45 hours of training in a week. Yeah, I don't think I added up the hours. I, I just used to always add up the uh, the kilometres. and uh, um, But, yeah, yeah, I don't know what the hours were, but uh, they would have been fairly high as well, that's for sure. And how many, like, would you do that for multiple weeks in a row, Cam? Uh, yep, yeah, there was, yeah, there was, so, I mean, yeah, that was the biggest week, but um, I think we might have, we might have done that for two weeks and, and then, but the the rest of the time, you know, it was, it was big weeks as well, not that the the cycling came down, that's for sure, but um, yeah, the swimming and running, you know, I've always sort of made a stand of, of um, you know, around that sort of 110, 120K weeks. Um, and, you know, there was a few 130, 140K weeks in there as well at some point. And you said you've got the the training, pro, like the logs to, to back it up. Would you be able to take me into like what those weeks would look like a bit more specifically? Like, so for example, what would an 800 kilometre cycling week actually look like Monday through to Sunday type thing? Uh, yeah, I'll have to go and get it because I can't remember that far back. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you'll have to pause this if you, if Let's you want pause me to go. It. I really want to know. All right. So we've just taken a, a couple of minute break because Cam's literally gone and gotten the old training diaries he has, like their physical training diaries. So take us inside these these massive weeks, Cam. Okay. All right. So this is uh, 2003, um, September the 1st. So we were um, that year. What I, I got... Um, I got third at Hawaii that year, so I uh, October race day in October that year was the 18th of October. Yeah, so uh, used to go off the full moon. Um, you know, now it's sort of always that sort of second Saturday. Uh, but yeah, back in the old days, um, sometimes it was nearly at the end of October. So yeah, so the first week uh, of this um, big week was uh, yeah, so I swam with. Nate, Greg, and Lynn. Uh, we did 5.7 Ks. So, um, main set was um, 500 meters, paddle pull, two 100s, 100 kick, three times that. And then we uh, went out, rode 140 Ks, 
four hours 45 and then uh, an easy run that night of 10k next day tuesday uh, ran 18k in the morning and we did uh, five times one mile from uh, around about 520 um, per mile pace and the 200 recovery between uh, then we rode 930 so we ran at 710 930 rode with um, my mate Greg, uh, Gog and uh, Nathan and 95k 3 hours 10 and then swam at 330 5.2k and uh, yeah, another um, 3 by 600 pad a pull, 2 by 50 kick, 4 times 50 times 3. So that was a good um, sort of 3k set. Then uh, the Wednesday rode uh, 6 hours, 180ks, and then ran off the bike. Like, uh, a few fast boys, Gog, Nathan, uh, Bryce Quirk, Courtney Atkinson, Ben, and uh, you rode the uh, Hills Beachmont, Narang, um, yeah, Tambourine, so it's a real hilly bike, and then ran 11k off the bike. Uh, Thursday swam 5.3k and then it was 6.30 in the morning then rode on the turbo trainer actually yeah um, and did 110k jeepers uh, and did 3 by 15 minutes um, on the turbo and oh then I sorry I did half on the turbo and then half on the road and then um, later on, I don't know what time it was, ran 17k uh, later on that uh, that evening. Friday, swam Pizzy Park, uh, 4.3k, and then rode uh, 73k up the Corundin Valley. Uh, that was uh, 2 hours 30, um, and that was just an easy day, Friday. Uh, Saturday morning, 6.30, got up... Um, and we went to, oh, there was a bike race up at um, Kumanba that uh, ran the circuit. So we used to ride that every Saturday. That was a yeah, hard little um, short circuit with a whole lot of boys. And so that was a five and a half hour, 180k bike ride. And then got off and ran 50 minutes off the bike. Um, pretty steady. And then Sunday, I ran two hours, 29k. And then um, three hour ride later on in the afternoon. So that week it was 20 and a half K swim, 875 Ks on the bike and 100 Ks of running nearly. Holy shit. I, like, I don't even know what to say. Like I don't really have any, like I, that's insanity camp. I've never, I said to Patrick Lang the other, the other week that he'd sort of taken over as probably the craziest training week I'd heard in some of his um, weeks in his eight-week block in the lead-up to Kona. But it's like, it's not even in the same ballpark of, of insane as that week you've just described. Pretty much the next week was yeah similar. It was yeah, 21K swimming, 762K of biking, 102K of running. And then the next week I got sick. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I had... Uh, yeah, only, yeah, had, so I had one, two, two days off and then started coming right again. But yeah, the next week was, um, um, yeah, a few easy days and yeah, an easy week. And then lucky, luckily I came right after that. But um, yeah, I pushed, pushed the boundaries, that's for sure. Can you walk me through the thought process? Is Were you and your coach just massive believers that volume was the key? Yeah, early on in my career, like I, um, you know, Scott doubled my training, you know, I just, Probably went into it uh, into Ironman racing, thinking I was going to go right. And my first race in 1997 in Auckland, I just got absolutely smashed. And 
just didn't realize how fast you know these guys actually ride um you know 40 k's an hour and uh yeah just didn't didn't really know what what it was all about and, and got a, a a huge shock to the system that man these guys are just they're fast but they're super strong as well so that um that that really woke me up to thinking what i what i needed to do to to get better and, and stronger um, i'd come from you know the itu uh, world cup um background and just um yeah probably probably riding sort of 300 k's a week and in a big week and um so yeah to to you know go from that to you know 875 k's um you know in a few years was yeah that's pretty much what professional cyclists do and but then you're you know you're running 100 k's on top of that and swimming as well and and then probably doing a little bit of core work as well so um yeah massive massive weeks and they were pretty uh, tiring that's for sure but I managed to get through them and, and yeah I, I think I had a lot of guys around me helping me you know there wasn't there wasn't too many days when I was on the Gold Coast you know training without other athletes and it, it would have been very very challenging if I'd um, gone through those weeks by myself so I probably couldn't have done it. In like sport in general there's there's a lot of like legend or like myth about what people used to do and it gets blown up but there in the sport of triathlon, it's like it, it's not just this thing that's been built up over time and like, oh, back in our day, you know, oh, you should have seen what the guys were doing back in the day. Forever I've heard stories about that era, the, the late 90s, early 2000s era being the era in triathlon that no one before it and no one after it has ever done the, the volume of training that you guys were doing. And I'm talking about like yourself and – um, Thomas Hellriegel and Norman Stadler and Peter Reed and Tim DeBoom and that era of, uh, that you were sort of at your peak in. Is it true? Were you guys all doing that and that's why you had to do it as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if we we're all doing it, but, um, you know, I think it, it came from, you know, yeah, it, people were still learning and of, um, you know, what to do. And it was, I think, I don't know what year I got a, a power meter, but, um, it might have been yeah, those early 2000s, so it was still, um, you know, you still really didn't know what the hell you were doing, really. Um, you know, it was, it was a lot of trial and error, but um, I, um, you know, I was willing to, to give it a shot and, and see, see if it worked. And, and um, you know, um, as I said, sometimes you, you got through it, but then, you know, other, you know, a week later you were in the box and um, you were nearly, nearly getting sick and... and uh, so you had to really be careful what you were, how hard to push yourself. And so for like those two, so those two weeks you talk about, which are massive, it's like 90 hours training in two weeks. In the lead up to Kona, would you do like a specific block and how long would it be? And if you had two weeks like that, what would the weeks before it look like? Um, I mean, I was always, always going to, you know, when I'd go to the Gold Coast, it was a massive block of training. You know, it's I was coming out of, well, I'd, I'd done uh, Ironman Germany in July. You know, I would have had a, a you know a couple of easy weeks or off weeks, and then you were just building from then on. So, um, you know, it was it was always challenging. You know, trying to train through a, a New Zealand winter. So, um, but still, yeah, around twenty k's the week before when I was in New Zealand, five hundred and fourteen k's on the bike, hundred k's of running. Um, the week before. 20Ks of swimming, 500Ks of biking, 118Ks of running. So you were slowly building up to that that massive mileage. So, And then, as I said, you know, I'd come off. I always had three peaks through the year. It was New Zealand in, in March, uh, Germany in July, and 
away in October. So, um, and through that period, you know, I, I recovered very, very well. And but I'd have a lot of times, you know, after Hawaii, I'd have three weeks off. After um, New Zealand, I'd have a couple of weeks off, and after Germany, I'd, I'd have a, a few weeks off. So, and then. But if I did that nowadays, I'd, I'd get injured within the first week. You know, my calf would blow up. So, um, you know, when you when you when you are young, you can recover and uh, go again very very quickly. But um, as you age, as I've been finding out, that uh, I, I cannot rest now. You know, it's active recovery uh, the whole time. Uh, otherwise, you, you you pull a pull a calf and you're out for six weeks. So just to like confirm, I've got my head wrapped around this. Your sort of first week of, of training, like of like your specific block into Kona, let's call, call it, you were still in New Zealand before you'd come over to the Gold Coast. You'd do like what you described then to me sounded like a 35, 36-hour week type thing. And yep. that was your starting point where you would build from. So you that would be like two to three months worth, would it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Germany was July, uh, first week of July normally. And then, um, yeah, you'd have... Uh, um, a few weeks off after that, um, and, then, and then yeah, you'd just be building from that that moment onwards. Yeah, so like it would be ten to twelve weeks bef- between that and Kona of actually training of that being your first week. So you would do a ten to twelve week block type thing in the lead up to Kona, where your first week, the lowest volume week you would do, would be. I thought I in my head I sort of added up to be about thirty six hours, and you would build to there up to the point where you're doing two weeks in a row at 45, 46, maybe even a little bit more hours. I just like, that's insane to me. That's that's like, I've never heard anything even in the realm of that. Yeah, oh, I mean, I, I, was, I was keen to push the boundaries and and, and Scott, you know, Melina, um, yeah, he definitely uh, pushed me to those uh, new boundaries, that's for sure. So, um, um, yeah, and, and, you know, all those... Um, that, that whole year, you know, I won New Zealand Ironman. Um, I got second at uh, Frankfurt, and um, I think uh, Stephen Holzner won it that year. I was maybe I think two minutes behind, and and then um, and then yeah, I got third in Hawaii. So you know, it, it wasn't though it was it was killing me. It was you know I was consistently racing um, at my peak and and being able to handle it and recover. So um, it, it wasn't though it wasn't working. It was working fine. So. Um, um, and yeah, I mean, nowadays, God, we have so much more information with, you know, power meters and, and heart rate and, uh, um, you know, GPS watches and, and knowing exactly, you know, how you're recovering and that and, you know, hey, maybe you, you would take another, if you were doing it all over again with all that information, then yeah, you, maybe you, you wouldn't be doing those that high volume, but uh, it, it, hey, it worked and, and, you know, worked pretty well. Yeah, I mean, without question, you're one of the, the the best triathletes to ever live. Definitely one of the best long course triathletes to ever live. So it just speaks to that era, though. Everyone seemed to be doing pretty insane training. But even amongst that era, which is sort of what I alluded to in my intro, Cam, you were known amongst your peers as being the guy who trained harder than anyone else. And I've had that confirmed by multiple people, you know, like world champions around that era. Uh, I went and asked beforehand because I'd heard it for so long and yeah, to actually hear you talking about what you were doing. It's it's easy to see why you were regarded by your peers as the guy who, if, if you wanted to win, you had to try and work close to as hard as Cam Brown because you knew that Cam Brown was going to be doing that kind of training. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that's probably why I scared a few people off from coming to 
New Zealand because I probably I probably peaked. Um, you know, New Zealand was it was just so easy to train for for me being through New Zealand summer and um, I probably I probably got in the best shape for New Zealand. You know, I always I probably struggled a little bit because you know as as triathletes from the southern hemisphere we have to uh, train abroad. Uh, you know, it's very very challenging to. I did it once, you know, a couple of times, just trying to train for Hawaii. The first year I went there and, and uh, based myself pretty much the whole winter in, in New Zealand, um, and yeah, it was just too too hard. So, um, you know, going over to that that Gold Coast, it was you know it was only a three hour flight. We had uh, my family could come. You know, at that stage, I had a um, you know two young boys, so uh, Jen and that and the boys would come across and. We would have a great time, and you know the the weather was you know um, pretty pretty bloody good through that period. You know you, you would you would get you know thirty degree days and and not too hot, not 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 you know not, uh, still sort of mild mornings and that. So it was uh, perfect training for me, and and I had a lot of friends that could come over and train with me. So it was uh, sort of the perfect uh, training environment for me. There's a couple of things that that really fascinate me about the the amount you're training there mentally how did you go about that was it was it tough to train that much did you have a lot of times where you didn't want to get out the door did you have like mental ups and downs or were you someone who just lived it and loved it and never struggled with it oh no i definitely you know we'd, we'd if i had a, a great training partner mark watson who um um you know he he'd, he was my training partner for many many years and came on many trips and that with me and uh um yeah we we always tried to have fun out there and, and have a good laugh and but you know sometimes you'd you know you'd be on your sunday run and uh you know two and a half hours and, and half an hour into it you, you wanted to turn home and, and and go back and go to bed but um you know we would just we would not um give up we would just keep persevering and keep pushing and, and it ended up you know you'd, you'd come right after half an hour and you'd You'd switch over onto into your fats and start burning, and and um, you just get into the groove. And by the end of it, you know we were half wheeling each other, you know, sort of running four minute k pace at the end of a two and a half hour run after a uh, yeah forty forty five hour week of of training. So that uh, that was just constantly like that every every day. And um, you would just, as I said, if I didn't have those guys there, then I, I couldn't have done it. And as I've, uh, you know, through my career, I've, I've lost a lot of those, you know, training partners, you know, they've all got full-time jobs now and, and then, and, uh, yeah, it, it is a real struggle when you're trying to do that sort of mileage up, you know, when you're training for an Ironman to to not have good training partners, it's um, it's so tough. So, um, you know, that's where, you know, you see all the guys on social media and there's not many times where they're, uh, you know, not with someone else, you know, getting pushed. So uh, it's so important to, to um have a team around you that can push you. And when you were struggling to get out the door occasionally, Cam, and, you know, just really didn't want to get out for that third session or that morning session, as triathletes, we've all been there where we have that sort of internal dialogue with ourselves, like trying to convince ourselves to go and do the session but not wanting to. When that would happen to you, what would your, like, internal dialogue or the conversation you'd have with yourself be? Like, how would you get yourself to go out and do it? I probably just thought of my family, you know, I had um, two young boys and um, I think, you know, at that stage, or 2003, when I did that build leading into Hawaii, you know, they would have been uh, um, uh, two-year-old and, and probably a six-month-year-old. So I knew, shit, you know, I had to put food on the table. Um, 
you know, I, I was the one, the one bringing the income. Jenny um, had, was, wasn't working at that stage, and um, yeah, I, if if I, if I didn't get out the door, then uh, I wasn't going to do well in Hawaii. And uh, so yeah, that, those those uh, sacrifices that you make, you know, you had to make them for your family and give yourself a good uh, uppercut and and uh, take a hard nut pull and and um, yeah, get out the door and, and get on with it. And um, and as I said, always you know. Half an hour into it, you would come right, you know, you, you, you left like a sack of shit, but you would uh, return with a bit of a smile on your face, thinking, yep, came right and, and did a good job. And then the other one is is diet. When you're training that much, can you talk to me about how you were eating? Uh, yeah, I, I would, oh, you know, God, I'd love my Coca-Cola and my chocolate and, you know, but yeah, I, you were just eating constantly the whole day and um, but yeah, you, you, you know, if you don't eat well, then you're you're not going to recover and, and succeed. So you, you know, but it's when you're training that sort of amount, you can have a little bit of crap. And you know, when you when you're having, uh, I still still do it to this day. You know, most most uh, five six hour rides include a coke and pie stop, and um, you know, just normal normal food. You know, nothing wrong with the pie. It's bit a bit of carb, bit of protein, bit of fat, and. Um, you see every professional cyclist when they finish a race, they grab a, a, a Coke, that's for sure, just to give them a little bit of a pickup. And you have to reward yourself when you, you know, you, you are trying to discipline yourself um, training that much. But if, if you don't have a little bit of enjoyment, then I think, you know, you just get stale and, and get fatigued very, very quickly. And, um, you know, you, you have to um, treat yourself um, otherwise yep she's going to be a long long um, road to tr tr trying to get it um, you know get in all that uh, nutrients and carbohydrate and, and uh, so yep I, I pretty much had a had a an okay diet but I uh, yep I didn't uh, sway away from having the uh, you know a piece of chocolate and, and uh, donut that's for sure. And you sort of touched on it a little bit before where you said um if you had all of the technology available to you back then that you might have now if you're redoing it in a hyper in a hypothetical world do you think if you were a, a you know a 28 year old pro right now would you do it the same again would you do the same high volume the same kind of blocks or yeah do you think that now that you you're 50 and you know you've had 20 years on the job learning and and changing your training and trying different things and seeing different things do you think there is elements that you would change back then uh not a heck of a lot no you'd probably just come down a little bit in volume um you know we still had some you know, bloody hard sessions and you know some of those three by three k on the track and five by one mile and uh, 10 by 800s and yeah you you you're 16 by 400s and um, you know, when you went out and rode as well, you rode bloody hard. So there, there was big mileage, but there was also uh, plenty of quality work in there as well. Um, and uh, athletes are going so much quicker, not not swimming and running, but just biking. You know, the biking is where technology has just improved so much. And, uh, you know, God, when I did my first Ironman, you know, the, the bike times, well, Auckland Ironman was such a tough course, you know, if you did five hours, you were, you were riding well, but, uh, um, you know, we've seen normal, you know, sort of four and a half hours, even in Europe, you know, now they're riding four hours, 10, you know, four, sometimes four hours, five, if you're a Camworth, so the bike times with aerodynamics and, and uh, technology, uh, yeah, when I first started, it was steel bikes, then into aluminium, but um, everything on my bike now is carbon fibre and those aerodynamics have drastically improved so much and everyone's nice and tucked and low and, um, 
Yeah, so, uh, you know, if, if athletes of that era had the technology that they have now, they'd be going the same speed, that's for sure. I've never asked anyone about this from your era, really, Cam, but something I've always, like, just wondered, I, I, it's not even from hearing anything, but you were sort of at your, let's, I don't want to call it your peak, but probably your best performances came in sort of like that 2000 to 2005 era, and we know that in cycling that was a really bad era not to say that it's it's not still bad now, but it was a really bad era for doping. We we know for a fact. Do you think that that translated and and inside the the long course triathlon scene there was much doping going on at the time that you were competing against? Oh God, yeah, 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 and there still would be now. Um, absolutely, yep. I've known quite a few guys. Uh, Rukabiki, who finished in front of me in Hawaii one year, he tested positive um, for EPO and. Uh, you know, I think he blamed, um, you know, uh, his doctor or something for, I don't know, some medication. But yeah, absolutely, there was uh, there was a lot of uh, drug testing and uh, positives, that's for sure. And uh, yep, I have no doubt I was beaten off the podium, um, you know, a few times with uh, drug cheats. So that would have been two thousand and three, where you came third and he came second. Yep, and then I think then the next year I think he tested, or that later that year I think he might have tested positive. Then I think. Yeah, because it is one of those things where because like that era, it was just so well known amongst the the professional endurance community that, hey, you could take EPO and it was pretty easy to get get away with. And that's all obviously came out now, the hands of Lance Armstrong, mainly the, the, the main reason it's all come out. But there was a lot of performances back there that even on reflection now you look at and you go, oh, you just wonder. So to hear you say that, it's... um. Yeah, it really makes you think about who was doing what, and do you do you hold much resentment? Do you think about that often? Do you do you sometimes think that that your career should have been so much more if if you weren't racing against people who were who were drug te- cheating? Oh, well, I mean, if they ever come out, you know, even if it's in another twenty years, I'd still be pissed off because you know it, it would be a, a race that was taking taken away from you from from a cheat. And uh, yeah, absolutely, I think um, you know there have been some performances out there over those years and uh you know probably even into the um uh, 90s and, and late 80s you know it was it was around as well you know there was uh it, yeah it, it the, we're lucky probably there there isn't the money in triathlon that there is in cycling you know if, if we had the money that cycling has then then there yeah it would be next level um but yeah there there's yeah probably 99 of athletes are clean but um you know you only need one percent that are um, willing to to take the the chance of uh, having you know taking taking some sort of uh, performance enhancing you know drug that'll and they'll do it you know I, I wouldn't trust anyone really out there um, that uh, you know yeah I, I have my doubts that's for sure. Do you have your doubts about specific people that you used to race against? Uh, yep, yep, for sure. No, I'm I'm just assuming none that you would say publicly on a podcast. No. No, no, yeah, no. But is there is there a person or multiple people that you and other people who you believe were clean racing back there often will talk about? Like, oh, we know he was doing it; he just didn't get caught. Uh, well, some some eventually got caught. Yeah, definitely. Yep, uh, I know quite a few Europeans that um, got caught over the, over the, over time. Um, you know, probably a little bit later on after their um, their peaks, um, you'd say. I don't want to give anything away. I don't want to make you sort of <laughs> hint at anyone, but 
Do you think that if drugs didn't exist in the sport when you were racing, do you think that you would have won an Ironman World Championships? Um, yeah, maybe one here. Yep. Yeah, that's pretty crazy to hear. And do you think that? Do you think that triathlon in your era, in the the late nineties, early two thousands? I say your era. You're still racing as a professional now, which is just crazy. But your era when you were fighting for podiums at, at the Ironman World Championships versus today's era, do you think that doping was more prevalent in your era or than, than it is to, in today's era? Or do you think it's pretty comparable probably? Oh, probably pretty comparable, I think. You know, I mean, now you're getting – athletes are just yeah, – they have doctors around them and, and uh, they know exactly how long, you know, something will be in your system for and, and uh, how long it will stay and – um, you know, we've seen, oh, I mean, you know, the late Nina Craft, I, I remember uh, 2004, I was just having a shocker of a day and I, think I, uh, um, I was running with her, um, my back blew up and uh, I uh, ran with her for the, you know, the rest of the way and, and supported her and then I, I got to the airport after the prize giving and we're flying out and, you know, I, I congratulated because I hadn't seen her afterwards and, and she, you know, just wasn't, you know, very happy. And I thought, wow, you've just won the world championships. You know, you should be just over the moon. And, and yeah, sure enough, a month later, you know, it came out that she tested positive for EPO. And, you know, uh, so, um, and yeah, and, you know, sadly she's passed away, you know, but um, there's, I'm sure there's been multiple cases like that over the, over the, over time. And, and, you know, not just, you know, uh, long course, short course, then, Dimitri Gag, you know, a short course athlete, you know, tested positive many, many times and so many other athletes through that short course career, you know, in, in the um, 90s, 2000s. And uh, so, yeah, what, why is it any different? There'd be no difference whatsoever now. You know, there'd be still guys willing to to, to take that uh, chance to, to, to get an Olympic medal or, you know, a, a long course uh, world championship. Pretty crazy to hear that level of, like, like openness about this subject from you because my experience of hosting this podcast is I'll I'll ask these questions about doping and on air there'll be a few people who might say no nah, I don't think it exists and then off air they'll say oh I think it probably does without naming names well yeah it, it does exist because people have been caught you know many many times so you know I think you're you're a fool if you don't think that you know and and everyone was a fool when they thought Lance Armstrong was clean because we just got sucked into that. That uh, you know, his his saying that you yeah, know he was he was tested hundreds of times, and but he was he was ahead of science. You know, he knew exactly what to do to to get away with it, and, and it's incredible that you know he was never caught. You know, to this day, he was never caught. You know, it's only that his word that said, "Yep, yeah, I doped." You know, but otherwise, all his records were clean. Well, that's you know, maybe maybe if you looked into UCI, then, then there might have been a few positives that were swept under the carpet. Who knows? Yeah, well, there's that famous story that Tyler Tyler Hamilton tells, where um, Lance got got te like tested, tested positive, went in for a meeting with the UCI, and they swept it under the carpet. Tyler Tyler yeah. Hamilton's been on the record as, as telling that story in in books and 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 in interviews, audio interviews. So, yeah, there's no doubt that happened. It's just I like I I think we have this. Um, naive you as triathlon fans that cycling is dirty running is du is dirty but triathlon's not and so to hear you talk about it it does sort of make you sit back and think like oh i i, I do wonder how prevalent it is in in long course triathlon and, and in our sport 
Yeah, I mean, it's only a very, very few that will, you know, go that way. But, you know, a few um, ruin someone else's chance of, you know, racing clean and, and um, win it winning. So, um, and uh, I mean, yeah, if someone, as I said, if someone did come out 20 years down the track saying, yep, they uh, they did uh, take drugs and that'll be the only time they ever do when, you know, it's uh, it's over the hill and that, I would still be pissed off because, um, you know, you, you've taken that away from someone. I hate to ask questions like this, but I have to. Was there ever a point where you were thinking it or resentful towards it and and, and thought to yourself, fuck it, I'm going to do it? No, never. never. My wife would uh, divorce me um, and uh, I'd be kicked out on, 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 on the road and uh, I was... Uh, I would uh, never. I could never live with myself if I uh, had ever taken drugs. That's for sure. Changing the topic a little bit, but thank you for being so open about that. It was like truly insightful, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm like digesting. That's going to take a little bit because um, not many people are that open with me about that topic. So thanks, Cam. But training. Did you ever have like sessions that you would go to again and again and again because you loved them so much? Like favorite sessions that really the only reason they were in your program was because of how much you loved them, not even necessarily because you thought they were the best session for you? Uh, yeah, well, probably, probably, you know, my go-to uh, through through any New Zealand summer training was, uh, we, we call it the coast ride, and it's, uh, well, you, you can make it from, you know, from my house on the outskirts of Auckland, 155Ks to a 200K ride, depending if, you know, you go a little bit longer and and then, and then uh, um, you know, I would always have uh, some sort of, interval ride through that whether it be you know four by 30 or um 100k tempo or uh you know three by 60 um you know was there was some sort of workout in that and then and then a run off the bike and always sort of you know i loved my um three by three k off the bike or a two by five k and um yeah just sessions like that that just i knew just got me in that mode of ironman racing and um they were, you know, bloody hard sessions, but I, I did enjoy them. And, and, and as I said, you know, I, I do a lot by myself now, but back in the heyday, they were always sort of done with a group of the athletes um, that would push me and and uh, get the most out of me. And, and uh, most of the runs were, were by myself if, you know, if I was, because yeah, the athletes would go to their own home to do their run off the bike. But uh, the, that bike ride was yeah, um, with other athletes and that was a real staple of my, my training. How important did you view brick sessions in your training? Uh, probably, yeah, probably some of the most important sessions. I, I would always, so my Wednesday and Saturday sessions were always brick sessions. And I, I never, you know, I, I never ran. Some people you hear, you know, they'd run two hours off the bike. You know, my longest would be oh, anything from an hour to an hour 15. But, you know, they were always done with, um, uh, you know, some sort of tempo work in them. Um and pretty pretty solid you know you'd be doing some of those three by three k getting down to you know so three three twenty k pace um which is fast for me fast for me because i was neither a runner you know it ended up being my strength but you know in my short course career i was um yeah i, I struggled to run fast like the you know the real uh itu boys like hamish carter and bevan doherty so i um I ended up, you know, yeah, ran, running was my strength in Ironman, so it was fantastic. How specific was your training to Ironman? So when you would do your bricks, when you would do your bike sessions, when you would do your run and, and swim sessions, were you trying to do things 
in your lead up to say the Ironman World Championships or, or Ironman New Zealand, were you trying to do all of your intervals and all of your sessions at Ironman pace or would you more do things where you would go a lot faster than Ironman pace and then a lot slower than Ironman pace? Yeah, there was a mixture, you know, when you were doing those, uh, some of the some of the sessions where you do 100K, you know, it was it was harder and, and um, sometimes, you know, some of the ones were a little bit lower in, in wattage and, and then, you know, you'd do some sessions where you'd, go out by eight times eight minutes you know as hard as you could um so it, it differed all the time depending on the weeks before the you know the, the the race you know the the longer intervals happened earlier on in the program and and then as the closer i got you know it shortened up and were you coached by scott your whole career no 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 probably i think it was about maybe three or four years and then um he sort of turned me on to brendan cameron who had Coached uh, Sarah Ulmer, who was the um, Olympic gold medalist in the women's pursuit uh, on the track, and he was yeah fantastic with um, the power meters. You know, Scott, you know, hadn't been brought up with them and, and didn't know too much, so he wanted to me to really, you know, cycling was my sort of weak leg at that stage, and he wanted me to really sort of start concentrating on trying to push that 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 biking to the next level and gauge you know that that cycling a lot more. So um, yeah, I, I started training with Brendan and. Um, and yeah, it was fantastic going through that era of you know training th- with wattage rather than by feel. And you talked about how you would do like those really crazy big weeks, and then potentially like get sick, or that was the the sort of thing that would hold you back. But with those crazy volumes, particularly I guess in your running, you were doing really high run volumes compared to what most long course triathletes do. Were you getting injured much? No, not at all. No, no, I was very, very good. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was just, uh, it was only in my late career, you know, probably the last five years where, um, I, I, you know, calf injuries have come into, into force and I've been really struggling. So, um, I, as I said, I, yeah, I cannot stop really, you know, I've, I've had five days off after I'm in New Zealand, just mentally in that. But, um, as I said, in the early years, it was, it was two to three weeks totally off and I just can't do that nowadays. So it's, um, it's active recovery now and, um, and if I don't, then and more time in the gym as well, just strengthening. Yeah, because as we age, we get weaker as well. And but uh, early on in my career, I was exceptionally lucky, and 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 um, yeah, just never never really got injury injured at all. Do you think it's luck? Like there was, was there something about your physiological build that that made it you that you didn't get injured? Was it like a technical thing, or do you think there was a reason, like with the way the training was prescribed, or the diet, or sleep, or other things? Like, do you think there was a reason why you, you weren't getting injured and it wasn't luck? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. So I'm just saying it, was, you know, it wasn't you know, luck, um, but yeah, it was. I think yeah, I, I had pretty good running form, biomechanic wise, and all that, and that uh, um, I used to pronate a little bit, but. Um, I think um, you know we started doing more more gym work and, and especially core work and and you know that was sort of starting to really come into and you know that strength t- training and conditioning um, back probably in those early two thousands you know uh, you, you really I didn't do much at all in my early career and and um, I think um, with that volume I don't know I just began to get stronger and stronger in my core and, and uh, yeah core was everything in the end with uh, trying to stay injury free and uh, just being strong through you know you always have that Ironman shuffle and where people just you know their butt, butt, butts went backwards and they, they lost all their form and where I was able to 
just run strong and steady throughout that whole marathon and, and keep picking up people. So, um, as I said, my running was my weakness in my early years of short course, and then uh, I think uh, I just got better and better form as I as I aged. Um, I think I was one of those athletes. Um, over time, you know, it took me a lot longer to, to to gain that strength and conditioning. Where you know, some some athletes were, you know, they were fully grown and and their strength and conditioning was had you know was was perfect at 21 22 where i was probably 26 27 before i started really um gain that real form and and um conditioning in, in, in my body if you've heard me talk about form goggles this year and thought maybe you would like to try them but haven't committed yet you just have to make the leap and try them I was doing a swim during the week and found myself thinking how I've been swimming consistently the whole year so far and it's already March, which I know might not sound like much, but that's the most consistently I've swam in like three to four years at least. And I was just having one of those swims where everything was feeling good, I felt fast and smooth and I was enjoying it. It was a bit of like a cloud nine feeling almost that are pretty rare to feel for me in the pool. And I would honestly have never had that if I didn't start being motivated to swim to firstly try my form goggles, but then also continue using them because I find doing sessions in them fun and motivating. There just literally is no world in which I'll ever go back to using normal goggles. And I can't tell you how good it is to be able to see live pace on your goggles in front of you when you swim, not just looking at the boring bottom of the pool, follow along to workouts you preset in them and not having to wear a watch on your wrist while you, while you swim and like having to hit start and stop on it and it being like bulky and annoying. I also just love looking back at all the data from the form goggles on the app after my session, like just sitting back on the pool deck or in my car when I'm about to leave the pool and, and scrolling through the data. Like I, that really motivates me as well um, and gives me like a sense of achievement after my swim. I, I guess, like honestly, I just love everything about them pretty much, especially compared to, to my old goggles I used to use. Um, I also coach some athletes and most of them have got form goggles since I started using them. And all of them who have given them a try give me the same feedback that they love them. Um, they're making the swimming they're doing funner, more motivating and not dreading doing sessions or long boring swims as much. So hearing that, not only as someone who tries to tell people how good form goggles are and spread the message, um, but also as a coach who wants my athletes enjoying their training is, is awesome. So like I said, if you've considered trying them and haven't made the leap yet, just do it. I guarantee you, you won't regret it and will wish you got, to them, got onto them sooner, which is exactly how I feel. Use code HTT15 at checkout when you buy them for 15% off. Plus, it gets you one year's free premium subscription, which is awesome because if you don't have a swim coach, the premium subscription comes with so many sessions um, and swim training programs you can use that you can just upload automatically from the app to your goggles. It's really easy. The link to buy them will be in the episode description, as will the HTT15 discount code as a reminder. Um, that code helps support the show. So it's a bit of a win-win. You get some goggles I know you love and, and it supports how they train. With your training, do you think that the best race you ever had was because you had the best training block you ever had? Or did the best race you ever have not come from the best training block you've ever had? Um, I think I always I was always very, very consistent. And uh, I think consistency in my whole career was something that really helped me. You know, I didn't, uh, as I said, I didn't get injured 
at all really in, in most of my throughout most of my career so um you know i didn't uh i don't know i, I pushed the boundaries but then i i didn't push the boundaries that i got injured all the time or anything like that you know i think i i, I ran so much on I, you know, I love my trail running and i think even to this day you know probably i don't know 70 80 percent of it will probably be on trails if i can so I think I, I, I tried to look after, um, you know, my lower body as, as much as I can. And I think running on trails definitely, definitely helped me throughout my career. And um, yeah, maybe if I'd run on the road that whole time, then yep, I, sh I definitely would have got injured. But it's something I love doing. And even though, you know, sometimes you can't uh, run quick um, on trails, it, it does have benefits and it, it pays off in the end, and that's for sure. Let's dissect that a little bit because that's fascinating and, and a talking point I love. Why do you think specifically running on the trails for 70, 80% of your training is beneficial? Oh, because I stopped me getting injured. That's the main thing. But uh, I think uh, it stopped the boredom. Um, it's, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I've I, I run so many hills. I mean, Auckland is just hills everywhere you know you, you, there's it's it's a hard place to find find a flat section around where i've always trained so i think that was beneficial for my training as well um and you know develop as i said my, my running form my running core um and you know I'm, I'm lucky to have a lot of trails around me as well so but then in saying that you know i would i would sometimes um you know travel in a car for 45 minutes you know to, to get to a, a set of trails to just you know, do something different and um, throughout, you know, my time of, yeah, wherever it may be, I, I just want to change things up and and try new new places to run. And uh, I think that's that's really helped me over my career is just keeping the mind fresh. And um, I think, you know, when you're monotonous and, and just do the same thing over and over again, you get bored very, very quickly. And uh, I think I've uh, made sure that I've... Uh, stayed in love with the sport for, for 35 years and, and that's uh, why I'm still here today. So would you only do your easy running on trails, like your easy running, your easy long running, or would you do some sessions on the trails as well? No, I, I would do sessions on the trails as well. And, uh, um, you know, it, hey, you, you might not run as fast, but, um, you know, you were saving your legs. And, and you know, you have to train on concrete and, and pavement at some point because, you know, you're running, when you're running 42Ks on it, then you have to get conditioned to it. If you if I did 100% on trails, and yeah, I'm sure when I uh, got to a race, then my legs would blow up after 30Ks. So, you know, there is there is definitely time for, for running on pavement as well. So uh, it's, it's, it's a must, but yeah, majority of my training, uh, has to be on trails to, you know, to so I just don't break down. So hypothesize with me here, Cam. If you were going to set someone's training right now, like you were going to try and coach someone who, let let's say they were a real podium contender, but you didn't know anything about how they how they were training, and you were just going to set them the running that you thought was best. How would you structure it in terms of? how like what kind of runs they would do on trails when they would do it and then how would you structure it so that they were conditioned for you know a marathon on the concrete um yeah i mean you, you have to break things down throughout the week and that and probably 
one of the the great runs we used to do was what Arthur Lilliard has had his boy famous you know New Zealand runner and coach and trained uh, many many Olympic champions and it was the uh, out west there's a, a, a hilly um, circuit the Wairua run and it was thirty five kilometres and um, half of it was well probably yeah half of it now is, is trails but half of it was on road and um, you know a lot of my long runs ended up being they were almost tempo runs because there was a hill in it that was five kilometres long and uh, you would run tempo up it and uh, it was it was all on um, you know gravel and that but uh, the, you know some of it was on on road undulations some of it you know the last part you were running downhill for 5Ks, so then you, you know, created a little bit more speed work and uh, that was on pavement as well. So it was it was probably the, the actual, the most perfect um, training run you, you could do for, for an Ironman because it involved all three, you know, your strength and conditioning, your, your, your speed, um, and, uh, and then, yeah, running part of it on road, part of it on, on trails. But... You know that was a staple part of my diet and, and running, but I always, you know, my Tuesday, my Thursday runs were always tempo runs, and my Saturday was was you know a steady run as well. And then all your other ones were just easy, you know, just like the Kenyans. It was uh, when you go easy, you go easy, and uh, I think, and that's where you have to be careful when you have other training partners. That when you know your easy time has to be easy and. You know, you can get sucked into to pushing the pace when it's an easy day. So, on those easy days, a lot of times I would uh, just run by myself and, and cruise. But every athlete is different. Every athlete doesn't have the tra- same training environment and conditions. And um, you know, sometimes when I would would travel my overseas program, then you, yeah, you would make sure you were going to a place that was perfect you know you couldn't afford to go to somewhere um you know when you used to go to Kona and I mean Kona the training environment is actually terrible you know it's it's boring there's only a couple of roads and you know the running is just horrendous for you for your conditioning for the race so um you know it's uh it's not a pleasant place to train that's for sure plus the heat and the humidity humidity just kill you so I always looked at the, the 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 good place to go, you know, San Diego and the and the late eighties and nineties was perfect. Now it's you know it's different. It's it's a super city, um, Boulder, Colorado. You know, had some fantastic trails and great training um, athletes to to train with. And um, and then you had the had the altitude as well. And when I went to France to train for Germany, you know, we'd, we'd have a, a, another great training environment. So you have to look at your environments just as much as your training. Um, factors as well who do you think was the best athlete you ever raced against um probably craig alexander you know uh, i just admire what he did he was you know he's a fantastic athlete a fantastic husband friend um and he he trained the house down as well you know he put in the work um you know in some ways he you know he, he probably might not have he probably didn't do the distance i did but um he 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 had the work ethic and um discipline that matched any athlete out there so um yeah definitely i think he would be the one of the people that i most look up to um in my era of of racing that's for sure this is this is fascinating because your era is like i sort of hinted at before i think of your era as as that period the you know the early mid 2000s 
but you are a r- racing professional long course triathlete still in 2023. And I don't know when did you st- when did you do your first pro long course race? Like 96, 97. Uh, yeah, Auckland Ironman when it was in Auckland was my first in 1997. Yeah, so that's a lot of like that's pretty much the entire existence of professional long course triathlon. Like it was probably you've probably only missed you know five to ten years of, of proper professional racing, um, which is like that's mind blowing to think about. You've seen you know all the errors really. Like anyone who's in the conversation for the best triathlete of all time, you've you've sort of been there when they've been racing, even sort of towards the end with Mark Allen just about. So um, do you think that Craig Alexander's the best to ever do it or do you think that there's someone else who's better that maybe you didn't race against in your peak? Like do you think Jan Fredino's come along and done it or the Norwegians or, or anyone else? Or, or do you regard Craig Alexander as just the best to ever do it? Um, oh, no, I mean... Yeah, I, I rate him through my era, but um, overall, um, I, I, I go back to the 80s and um, the 90s and what sort of Mark Allen did really. I mean, um, you know, that, that era of still learning what they were doing and, and, and going, you know, 807 and 1989, pretty much on, you know, steel bikes, carbon was coming into play really then, but the aerodynamics, um, you know, there was no carbon shoes, you know, there was, I mean, some of those races, you look back on at their wheels and, you know, they're riding 30 spoked, 36 spoked, you know, rimmed wheels with a, you know, a, a 20 mils, you know, in diameter and, and depth, you know, it's just crazy. And, and to think he went 807 on that day um, is just, you know, amazing. Um, you know, so you, 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 as I said, you translate that and put, what we have now onto him back in the day and he'd be just, yeah, he'd be going just as fast as what, you know, the Norwegians and Rian Fredino are going now. So, uh, you know, and winning it six times in that era, 10 times in Nice, uh, winning the world championship short course in, in 1989 in, in Avignon. Um, yeah, I, I sort of class Alan as absolutely one of the best and probably the best um you know with us from a short course to long course and with your time in the sport because you've been doing it for so long i I assume you don't really know anything else and this year is is your last year of professional racing so what now for you cam Uh, oh this year is sort of you know some bucket list races that um, I'm in Australia and I'm in Canada and Penticton, which are yeah, part of the original five you know events that were in the 80s um, that still exist. I'm in Japan doesn't exist, but I've you know I've done Germany, uh, New Zealand, and, and you know I yeah, I've done I've raced many times in Cairns and Melbourne for Ironman races, but I want to do you know Ironman Australia and um, and Ironman Canada. That's for sure from those original five. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm coaching at a school now, um, St. Kennekin College, and I'll get more into the coaching side of things. Um, and you know, I've I've been you know, I've set myself up well that uh, you know there's a lot of athletes out there that uh, they get to forty and uh, they still don't you know they still have nothing and don't have a house or anything. So I've made sure that you know I've made sure I've looked after myself and. and for the future so um, i'm happy where i'm at so uh, there's no stress and in, involved with uh trying to hurry around and and uh, get another job that's for sure do you think you will go into full-time coaching 
Uh, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. You know, it's uh, it, it it is has its challenges, and uh, I, I coach a few athletes and love it. You know, I like I like seeing them, you know, progress and 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 do well. And uh, so, but yep, um, that full time coaching is you know massive commitment as well. So yeah, time will tell, and uh, I'll um I'll persevere if if I if I if I do go down that avenue. And if you were gonna go into the coaching space, Cam. Would you coach age group triathletes or, or would you prefer to coach professional long course triathletes? I, I coach anyone who wants me to coach them. You know, I don't care who you are. You know, I'll, uh, I, I just give my time to anyone who um, approaches me. So it uh, doesn't matter who they are. You know, I've coached uh, professionals that, you know, through, through uh, the last 10 years to, to age groupers and uh, to, to uh, age groupers um, on the weekend at New Zealand Ironman. Um, as well so i'll uh, yeah i'll coach anyone who wants me to you know help them get better but you don't strictly have plans to start like cam brown coaching and, and go hard on it next year when you retire for example uh i'm still i'm still in that pro triathlete mode at the moment <laughs> that i just yeah i still want to persevere with yeah persevere sorry with that and and um and yeah i still have a love and passion for still being doing big mileage and and uh yeah still trying to see what i can get out of my 50 year old body that's for sure i know i i know at this stage i still haven't uh you know i've had injuries the last uh, couple of years that have really hampered my training and i want to just try and um have this year as, as a really focused year and, and trying to get the best out of my body and, and just staying injury free the whole year there's not uh, probably the last seven eight years you know i've been injured for too much of that time and it's really hampered my, my training so i just want to try and get the you know the utmost i can out of a, a body that's going to turn 51 in um, another few months time so when you say you still like love the the volume in in your training how much are you doing right now as a 50 year old uh oh it's probably more sort of around that 28 hour 30 hour mark um yeah and, and that's still a lot so you know it's um still very much time consuming um, and and yeah, you know, it's yeah yeah add that, but it's also the the physio massage that um, I have to get to to try and stay injury free on top of that. So um, I'm looking after my body as um, more than ever. So that's for sure. It's insane how how much training you've done over the course of your career. I was sort of thinking before this podcast, and this is like very 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 crazy to wrap your head around. But do you think there's a single human that's ever lived that has done more hours of endurance training than than you? Oh, I'm sure there's some more crazier people than me. That's for sure. There's a, you know, your, your ultra marathon runners that just absolutely go nuts. But yeah, I suppose when you you count up, you know, the biking does, you know, help help a lot with putting mileage on in the in the tank and 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 yeah so you you know that that cycling mileage is massive when you you think of how many circumferences of the world you've done over the last um you know since i was a 14 year old um back in 1986 so yeah it's uh it's be a heck of a lot and quite scary to think about um what you've done over that time yeah i was thinking about this i don't i don't know if there would have been because if you break it down, right, if you've been training, let's let's even say from the time you were sort of 20 to, to, to where you are now at 50, that's 30 years. And for a lot of that, you've been training between 30 and 45 hours a week, every single week. You have 
for sure you have cyclists and runners that train a lot, but they don't have that same volume of training because they're just doing the one sport. Like the big cycling weeks might do 30 hours a week, 35 hours a week at absolute tops. Like you don't really hear much more than that, but most professional cyclists probably train between, you know, 15 and 30 hours a week. Whereas if you in your prime for like 15, 20 years were doing 30 hours a week, it was a very small week and you were probably more up around that 35 hours, 40 hours, 45 hours a week and and definitely not runners. Like runners just cannot do that. Like a massive week for a runner is probably like 15, 15 hours. So there's just like, I don't know if there's a human that's ever existed that would have done the same volume, pure hours of training that you've done. Maybe there's like a 70-year-old bloke who just has 20 years on you so it's, so it's done it. But when it's all said and done, which is fucking wild to think about, like you might be the person who has trained more than any other human that's ever lived. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, crazy to think about. But yeah, you, you get those people that go on those um you know, run weeks where they just, you know, they, they, they run, you know, crazy distances for 15, 20 years. And, and uh, but yeah, you know, I've had my time off in the sport throughout those years. So they add up as well. But uh, yeah, it, it is a heck of a lot of training. That's for sure. A lot of mileage uh, put on the, the chassis. That's for sure. And so with this year, Cam, what does success look like for you in, in, in the races that you're going to do? So you have two or three Ironmans left that you're going to do. What, what is success for you there? Uh, oh, success is probably not, uh, not, not, not places on the podium or top tens. It's more probably um, my sort of satisfaction of getting the most out of my body and, and yeah, probably achieving a time that, um, you know, I still think, you know, I can go way quicker. You know, I went eight hours 42 on, um, you know, last Saturday, but uh, I know I can go a lot, lot quicker, um, you know, with a, a, an injury-free build-up. So, um, you know, I'm going to persevere with that. And, and um, you know, uh, these next couple of races, I'll be putting in my absolute best to, to try and get as fit as I can and, and um, you know, stay injury-free, stay positive, um, but still, you know, still enjoy it and still um, have a good laugh out there. And because you've been doing it for so long, like clearly you don't want to give up the sport. Most people who have had enough of it, they're done at 38, 40. You're, you're 50 and you're still racing, not as an age grouper, as a professional. So clearly you just want to stay in the sport. Are you struggling with the, the idea of giving it up? Do you actually want to give it up or is it is it just that you can't keep going on any longer? Uh, oh, oh, definitely. There's days where you, you know, you, you, you cannot be bothered getting out the door. You know, it's like, oh my god, you know, you don't feel like it. But most of the, most of the time, ninety nine percent of the time, it's um, yeah, it's pretty good and pretty easy to to get out there. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I struggle a lot with bad weather now. And, and um, you know, I, back in the days, you would go out in any kind of weather. But now, if it's pissing down with rain uh, i stay indoors and um you know i, I uh, we've had probably the worst summer on record in new zealand or in, in, in auckland that's for sure um the south island had a brilliant summer but it has been probably the most challenging build up for ironman new zealand this year with the weather conditions we've had but uh, i there's nothing better than you know 25 degree plus day blue skies and being on your bike for five hours and um, stopping for a pie and a coke, that's for sure. It's uh, And listening to some 80s music, and uh, <laughs> it's uh, its what I love to do. And, I'll, you know, it'll be different avenues that I'll, I'll, I want to do, you know, a lot of trail running 
it may not be racing at all, might be just you know going going up some awesome peak. A lot of gravel riding. We've got some incredible gravel riding down the South Line that I want to um, get into. So you know, if, if it's not doing triathlon, it'll be um, being on some trail somewhere uh, around the world and enjoying myself. Do you think you'll do age group triathlon when you retire next year? Uh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. That's the goal. Um, yeah, I, I I still have not won a world championship. So, um, yeah, I've been second, junior, second, and seniors, and uh, that podium spot the number one spot has eluded me so you know there's a lot of uh, age group athletes that um you know can't stand the thought that you know i'm allowed to to race professional they just think you should give it up but it's like well why should i when i enjoy it and love it so um it's almost like a you know it's it's not fair but it's like well uh it's not fair if i can't do what i love to do so i'll be definitely um you know the plan is to hopefully be in hawaii and uh, in the very near future, trying to win an age group world championship. I don't want this to sound offensive because it's not meant as as being offensive at all. Be, like I've followed your your whole career and I'm following along this year, but I'm more excited to see you go and try and win an age group world title than I am to watch your last few pro races. I just think it's like that could be such a fun journey if you document that because you're the longest serving professional triathlete the world's ever known and and you step away from the sport if you could win an age group world title in that first year out of the sport i think that would be like that sounds fun as fuck to follow along with oh yeah definitely yep yep and uh and that's not a given you know it's some incredible um age groupers out there that uh, go bloody fast so um you know um it's it's not easy and you know if, if you don't uh stay on top of your game then uh, you you won't get close to them so um, i'll be um you know hopefully my wife will let me have a have a, another easy year of uh, enjoying myself and 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 yeah that yeah jenny's been incredible over my time as a, as a professional athlete and she wants to get back to hawaii and and kona and, and um and and see that place again so um yeah we love it there and we'll be uh, definitely back uh, racing there hopefully next year in October. I can't wait for that now. And it works out. It's just aligned really perfectly with the World Championships being moved to Nice this year for the men, but then back to Kona next year for you in, in the first year that you retired. Like, I'm actually yeah. really I'm really excited about that now. I'm, I'm already looking forward to it. I would have actually been doing them this year um, as an age group, but um, because the change and, you know, the uh, now the woman and men separation, it had to wait another year. So, uh um, yep, I'll, um, I'm looking forward to to hopefully next year. Oh wow! So that's the reason that you went went again for another year as a professional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was um, I was um, yeah because I did my bucket list races uh, in in Europe last year and and uh, what was it? You know, December last year it, it changed. I was gonna I was gonna be racing uh, age group in, in Ironman New Zealand trying to qualify, and uh, when they brought out the when the rumor happened, I couldn't believe it. And um, yeah, so uh, we uh, changed the plan and went again. What do you think about it? Can you give me your opinion on the change from Ironman? Uh, oh, yeah, I'm a traditionalist and, and uh, I've grown up with the sport with everyone, you know, men and women starting uh, in the same place, same day, same, you know, um, in the same conditions. And yeah, I, 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 I want to see it return to being a, a one-day race in Hawaii uh, with men and women competing on the same day, and uh, I'm, yeah, I was very, very disappointed um, with a lot of people, um, you know. So uh, yeah, I, I want to go back to the original 
So hopefully that happens in the future again, because I don't think it, I don't think it should be a separate race. I don't know if you heard, but I did an, a, a podcast with Andrew Messick, the CEO of yes. Ironman, where yeah. I he, listened to it. Yeah. He, what you're asking for then is sort of what I was promoting in a way in that podcast, or not promoting, but really like asking, well, is it possible for this to go back to, to being a single day race um, at Kona? Not even saying that that's what I want. I just wanted to hear the thought process behind it and the logic behind all the, all of the decisions. And I think you could only walk away from listening to that podcast, realizing it's never going back to that. Not, not with the current administration who are in charge of it. Um, like as long as Andrew Messick's there and, and you know, the group he's got around him, they're not going back to that cam and it's not going to change. They're going to keep going along in the direction they are. So I guess with you saying that you, you're a traditionalist, you want it to go back, but hearing that podcast and what he's saying, where does that leave you ultimately? Uh, oh, time will tell. I mean, you know, um, you know, we, uh, when the roll down to, to each race just keeps going down, you know, when you qualify in 35th, 50th place, then that's telling you something that, um, people are not wanting to go. So, you know, if those spots don't get taken, then something has to change, you know. It's, uh, you know, I had a, had one of my athletes, she qualified, but she didn't take a spot because, you know, she she was brought up, you know, and she's a woman competing in, in the sport for many, many years, but she wants to see it go back to, to men and women. So um, um, that's, that's telling you something when... Spots aren't getting taken, and we've seen it at uh, Ironman WA, Ironman New Zealand twice now. Um, the spots are rolling very, very far down the list. So you, you're, you've pissed off a lot of athletes um, when that's the case. So um, you know, you, I don't know. Who, who knows? It'll. It's going to be a very interesting two-year period. That's for sure. Not to get too sort of political, for lack of a better word, but. If you had it your way, would there be changes made at the top of Ironman with the people making decisions? Uh, because they're obviously decisions you don't agree with. Um, yeah, well, yeah, that, that's they. Uh, they're, they're the CEOs of the sport, so they can do what they want to. But you know, as a traditionalist and, and someone who's been in it a long, long time and spoken to a lot, a lot of people, you know, there is a, a big backing to you know to have it back to a one-day event and with, you know, uh, yeah, I, I just think you've gone backwards, you know, for, for 45 years it was, it was fine and now it's not. So, you know, what what's changed? Well, that was the question I kept pondering, wasn't it, Cam? And it seems yeah. like the obvious answer that, that Andrew in that particular podcast was beating around the bush with is that they've increased it from one day to two day because they want more people there. And then they want to keep it as two day because they want more people there, and they've increased roll down slots and amount of available slots because they want more people there. And the reason why they want more people there is because they want more money. And now that they've got two days and there's four thousand odd athletes competing as opposed to what it used to be, sort of one day, you know, a thousand athletes there. That's to me seems like that's a money based decision. So it's clearly money driven. It's not about what sort of you care about or I care about or people following the sport care about. And that's like um, integrity of the sport and what's best for the professional and age group sport and the experience of racing a world championships and what it means to race a world championship. So I, I guess the whole point I was trying to make or the whole 
um, point I was trying to make people see is that the, the, the decisions being made aren't about those things that some of us care about, maybe some of us don't care about, but they're being made because money is the driving force. Yeah, and we've seen that in the um, price of the entry fee. You know, uh, a friend of mine qualified uh, in 2019. You know, it was um, he hasn't been able to go because the race has been cancelled and, and you know postponed. So he'll be going next year, and uh, he he paid one thousand dollars US, and then you know for for next year it's fifteen hundred and I think nine dollars uh, for the entry fee. So five hundred dollars it's gone up in that time. So, yeah, that tells you something as well. So there's more people, costs, you know, uh, have gone up, you know, $500. So, and there's no, you know, what, 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 what does it come down to that it's all, yeah, as I said, it's, it's all about money. You're in, for a, you're in for an expensive holiday next year to, to go and win that Ironman World Championships. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, when you put in the Kiwi peso, it, I think it works out to be $2,500. Uh, in New Zealand dollars, so just for an entry fee, a lot, yeah, and yeah. yeah, yeah, and and it's the accommodation there is just crazy now as well. So um, yeah, I think you know we heard a lot of athletes like Joe Skipper, you know, that people were, you know, the, the uh, owners of resorts were cancelling, you know, their their um, accommodation and then doubling and tripling it overnight. So um, you know, Kona has to take some of that blame as well for um, making it just too expensive you know so yeah it's just not one person you know that's um making costs go up it's you know a multitude of people that are making the sport extremely expensive and and uh, it's going to be too expensive shortly if we're not careful it's a bit of a frustrating thing isn't it that like really to go and do the ironman world championships you've got to low-key be pretty well off like you can't be someone who if you have $20,000 in your bank account, right, which for a lot of people is a lot of money. Like I I've li- I lived for years with fucking negative $100 in my bank account. I could never have considered going and doing the Ironman World Championships as an age grouper, even though I was someone who was, you know, training 30 hours a week as a triathlete. Like it just would not have been possible for me. And fair enough, like things have to cost money and you can't pay for anything with negative 100 bucks but even if you have $20,000 in your bank account and you're like a 28 year old um, female trying to make the Ironman World Championships you can't like that's not enough money to to get there if you took into account flights accommodation entry fee all your cost over there you would spend every cent of your $20,000 savings which is just like completely mind-blowing yeah absolutely it's crazy you know it's um and uh, yeah, we're, you know the Australian dollar is probably you know uh, not so much better off than the, the New Zealand dollar. So you know, imagine being a South African and trying to um, you know it's probably going to cost you ten times as much. So it's just yeah, it's getting out of hand, and, and the, you know those costs are just it's going to be for the elite of the elite, you know, to to qualify and, and go to these races. So and that's probably why you know athletes just don't race like they used to because the costs in, involved with any triathlon has, has just gone up um, over the years. So, um, you know, when you're buying a $10,000, $15,000 bike and a $1,000 wetsuit, um, you know, $350 carbon shoes, um, you know, and the list goes on, nutrition, coaching. It is an, an, a very expensive sport, sadly. So um, I think, you know, that grassroots that we saw in the 80s of, you know, 
$20-$30 entries and you get a t-shirt and a great little goodie bag have uh, well and truly gone and and um, you know athletes riding on 10 speed bikes it's just yeah um, uh, yeah the sport is sadly you know going uh, going away from you know the average that um, it's just becoming too elitist I think so we've got to be careful with what happens in the future that's one of the biggest ironies is that like often there's this like push towards hey and not, not really to single out Ironman it's it's a bit of a triathlon issue but it's definitely an Ironman issue that's like we're an inclusive company we care about inclusivity we care about women having their own day um, we care about disabled people having the ability to race and these things are great so don't get me wrong I'm not saying they're not good things they are great things we care about old people being able to race again another great thing I'm not saying it's not but you can't really claim to be this like you know um inclusive company when you continually like raise your prices to the point where you're completely exclusive the only people who can do your races are you know upper middle class borderline quite well off people that's not inclusive at all is it and i think that's a real real issue so not only is the fact that the the sort of traditional aspects of of the ironman world championships that we love being changed and, and the fabric of the the race being changed i can cop that but you know, continually raising these prices like this and, and making it cost this amount of money. To me, that excludes too many people from the sport. It definitely excludes a lot of people who are good enough to be there and would probably be competing at these races because they can't get there. It definitely excludes most 20 to 30-year-olds. Most 20 to 30-year-olds definitely don't have that kind of money to be spending. Um, and I think that's a real problem. So, yeah, I'm glad you agree with that, Cam. And I think it's something that as a, as a community, we've got to, you know, work to fix and spend our money going to local races that cost half the amount and you know don't cost you even nearly as much in in travel like i know new zealand has quite a few of those races that that aren't ironman branded half distance races um australia definitely has them like a race i've been promoting a lot hell of the west that happens in two weeks it's half the cost of, a, of an ironman actually less than half the cost of, cost of an ironman 70.3 it feels when you're out there racing it feels exactly the same pretty much it's like the same thing it just costs half the amount and if you're you're local to it you can get there for you know a couple of hundred bucks and i think it's important we start to support those races and um, and you know watch pto races and that kind of thing and at least get a little bit of competition in the system and and pick more affordable things so that iron man have to make a decision like or oh, we're losing people here because of how how expensive our races are getting yeah, I think that's why we've seen an explosion of trail running and trailer running events because you know all you need is a t-shirt and shorts and a pair of running shoes and and um, you know and you can go out and do a great, fantastic scenic race. So there's um, and, and you know all sports have um, eras where they go up and down, and um, I think yeah we're seeing the um, era of uh, trail running events definitely. Um, get stronger and stronger and um you know that, that that's great to see but i think yeah grassroots is extremely important for for people to we're sadly in auckland you know we used to have a, a race on every weekend now we have four races um triathlon races throughout the whole summer so um and yeah things like traffic management costs have just exploded over that time and you know you, when you're paying 150 dollars for a, a local race then even the local races are you know quite expensive so it's uh, and that's why yeah few people are able to afford to race it's you know rather than what we used to do back in the day of 10 races 15 races now it's people do one or two races through a whole summer so um 
Yeah, it's the sad part of the sport that um, you know I see um, going a wrong way. It's a pretty gloomy spot to end on, but unfortunately, it is the reality of the sport that we love, and 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 a real problem the sport that we love is facing at the moment. So, I think it's it, it's like naive and stupid to not talk about it, and to hear you speak of it being probably the person who from afar I respect more than anyone in the sport. Like no one has done what you've done in this sport. We don't have anyone, you know, if the, if we were an old uh, community, you're the, you're the elder of the triathlon world. You know what I mean? So to hear you bring up those issues, you know, people have to listen to that. That's an opinion. You know, we don't have a, a more valid, more educated opinion than, than yours on that. So I had to pick your brain about that, even though it is a bit of a sombre and, and, you know, like gloomy topic to talk about and and particularly to end on. But, um, yeah, let's wrap it up there, Cam. Fascinating discussion, 45-hour training weeks, you know, training like by far the most insane training I've heard on this podcast. And we've had Craig Alexander on and I know how insane his training was. He he would do sort of four weeks where he'd do 35 to 40-hour weeks in the lead into Kona and then to hear that you were doing 45, 46 hours and, and, and you know, doing these massive blocks of, of you know, t- 10 to 12 weeks at, at what he would consider his absolute max volume for four weeks, that's that's pretty insane. And then the doping chat and, um, and, and hearing about you going and pursuing an age group world, world title next year fascinating discussion one i'm really thankful to have had so thanks for giving me your time cam yeah no thanks very much jeff appreciate it mate have a good day awesome thanks matey like i've been saying the past few weeks if you're a triathlete and you're in australia you have to sign up to race hell of the west on march 26th hell of the west is easily one of australia's best long course triathlons the swim is two kilometers the ride's 80 kilometers and the run is 20 kilometers It's in Gundawindi in Queensland, so the weather will be nice and sunny, probably about 25 to 30 degrees. It's ran by local volunteers, but you go there and it feels exactly like a race organised by one of the bigger companies. It's been around for 32 years, so I guess it's really no surprise. It's so much cheaper than the bigger races as well, despite having the exact same feel. Like It literally just feels like you're at one of them. With the race being almost full, accommodation is actually getting a little bit hard to find. There's plenty of camping spots around if you and like your family or your friends want to make a weekend out of it. Um, And if you Google places to stay and ring them up, you might find something. But even if you can't, just make sure that you go and follow Hell of the West on Instagram. Support a local race that is doing so much to support Australian triathlon. They don't make that much money. It's it's, it's like ran by volunteers who don't make any money from it. There's no big company making heaps of money out of you and constantly increasing prices just to make money and not really give you much more for it. So yeah, go and follow them on Instagram and consider locking them into your race calendar for next year's races and getting accommodation nice and early. Seriously, it's just one of those Australian triathlons you have to do as an Australian and it feels bloody good to be there and support the locals. <laughs>